From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 13, for Wednesday, the 9th of October, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifred with the 13th edition of Share Profits Radio. I am indeed uh, speaking to you from Wales by 30 yards. And I have two fantastic guests on the show this week. Before we meet the first one of those, uh, I should just comment on the man who is rapidly becoming the biggest clown in the stock market. You may think there are many contenders for that. Some people would nominate me. Uh, others would nominate Justin Waite, Justin the Clown of Vox Markets fame. Uh, there are many other people who you would care to nominate. But my nomination is Chris Fraser, the CEO of Sirius Minerals. Uh, shares in Sirius Minerals were once 44p. It has 85,000 retail investors, and the shares are now about 3p. Uh, they've completely collapsed for a variety of reasons. One, of course, is that they got well ahead of themselves. They were over-ramped and over-promoted, not least by Fraser himself. Uh, but uh, the main reason is the company has critical funding problems. He's endeavoured to get a bond issue away in August. In September, it fessed up that he couldn't get the bond issue away. It's therefore uh, finds itself uh, in debt with uh, heavy net debts uh, and unable to secure the funding to develop its potash mine on the North Yorkshire Moors. It all looks rather bleak for Sirius. So who's to blame? Well, Chris Fraser knows. Uh, he has suggested that it is bulletin boards. He wants all of the bulletin boards shut down. Uh, Fraser suggests uh, that the reason that his shares fell in September was, well, perhaps those funding issues, the fact the company might get bust, etc. They might have been to blame. But what he spooked about is the fact that the day before that announcement, the shares fell by 10%. Now, it could be that there were many people speculating that the bond issue was indeed in deep trouble uh, and the silence from the company was damning in getting out. Uh, it could be that some people were aware of the fact that the bond issue was about to be pulled uh, because there must have been a large number of people aware, all the bond people who'd been tapped up and who'd said no, uh, the company's advisors, their PR folks, etc. There must have been hundreds of people who knew the bond issue was in trouble and potentially one of them blabbed. But no, 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 Fraser's got uh, a different idea. He says that someone posted on a bulletin board a suggestion that the company would have to do a placing and that uh, the market was so spooked uh, that the shares fell by 10% on the day. It is quite utterly ludicrous to link the two events. Uh, the idea that someone posting a spurious, as it happens, totally uh, incorrect rumour on a bulletin board would have seen a company uh, like Sirius, which was at that stage capitalised at six or 700 million quid, uh, lose 10% of its market value is preposterous. It is far, far more likely uh, that information leaked from the coterie of professional investors and advisors to the company, uh, and that saw the shares fall. Or indeed, just that people were uh, worried that the issue was going to fail and were getting out uh, ahead of that news. Uh, Fraser's uh, language uh, is interesting. 
Uh, he talks about how uh, 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 the uh, 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 people who post on bulletin boards are someone sitting in their basement in their sweatpants. Well, that may be some people who post on bulletin boards, <coughs> but I suspect that many others are suited and booted, leading perfectly respectable lives. When Sirius shares were racing ahead to 44p, there were all sorts of suggestions on bulletin boards. There were people putting price targets of 100p, 200p, 300p uh, for the stock. Uh, there were people suggesting that the company was a likely takeover target. Uh, surely with this fantastic asset in North Yorkshire, uh, a company like Rio, Rio Tinto or BHP Bulletin or the Chinese wouldn't be able to resist snapping it up as naturally at a huge premium to then share price. At the time, of course, Fraser didn't complain at all about bulletin boards. Uh, he ignored it and was very happy that people were buying shares on the basis of these spurious suggestions. Now, uh, he's rather worried. Uh, he's concerned. He's had a whole load of letters from people who've lost their life savings. There are reports of people threatening to kill themselves, panicking about how they're going to reveal to their nearest and dearest that they've blown their entire life savings. And uh, Fraser is lashing out. He says private investors shouldn't be allowed to make decisions by themselves. Uh, they should go and seek professional advice. Uh, now he wants private investors to stop talking uh, about stocks. Uh, he wants bulletin boards to be shut down, and he suggested that the FCA investigate uh, this particular post. I'm sure the FCA has an awful lot on its plate uh, and will not be stupid enough to believe that one post on a bulletin board was likely to have wiped 60 million off Sirius's market cap. It will be, I suspect, far more interested in getting a list of those who were insiders on the information revealed next day about the fact that the bond issue had failed and the company might well be set to crash land in tits up alley, it will be far more interested in getting a full insider list and seeing whether any of those people either traded or caused other people to trade. The whole suggestion is utterly preposterous. To his credit, Clem Chambers, the chief executive of ADBFN, actually slams this ludicrous uh, suggestion. Clem says, people who raise capital in public markets need to be prepared to be judged in the court of public opinion. How fragile is a company that feels threatened by someone sitting in the basement, in their basement, in their sweatpants? Engaging with, rather than insulting the private investor community, would seem the more sensible way to proceed. The private investor is no longer cannon fodder for the city and the markets, and its brokers will continue to dwindle until they treat the private investor properly. Absolutely spot on, Mr Chambers. Uh, you are bang on the money with that suggestion. The idea uh, that private investors need to get hugely expensive advice on what shares they buy uh, from stockbrokers who are usually uh, 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 young, uh, naive and inexperienced, but have no doubt passed all the silly exams they have to pass these days, is preposterous. It be a, a reversal back to the dark ages. Private investors are perfectly uh, able to make their own decisions. That some of them lose money uh, is the nature of the game. People will lose money in the markets. They will make money in the markets. The real issue for the markets, I suspect, uh, is that companies over-promote their story. 
we have on share profits pointed out how Sirius in the past announced big offtake deals with Chinese companies, uh, which saw the shares spike and saw the company able to raise funding, only for uh, the company in question to be wound up because it couldn't pay a debt of £31,000. Uh, that, to me, is the sort of irresponsible behaviour that the FCA needs to investigate. Not that, of course, it will. Anyhow, Mr. Mr. Fraser is rapidly emerging as the biggest clown on the London markets. His suggestions are preposterous. The issue is, how is he going to get the company, which he has managed, mismanaged arguably, out of the enormous hole which it finds itself in? This uh, podcast is, unlike most of the podcasts out there, uh, not paid for by companies uh, coming on and being asked soft questions. Uh, if you want that sort of nauseating and pointless interview, I suggest uh, you tune in to Justin the Clown over at Vox Markets. Indeed, we have no companies on today's show. Most shows, uh, we have people who are not running companies, but who are market experts. I'm able to bring you this podcast for free thanks to the kind sponsorship of Yorkville Advisors, uh, which is a firm operating in the United States, Britain, Australia, indeed across the world, providing capital for smaller and growth-quoted companies. It does it via the provision of straight equity, through debt, through convertible debt, not death spirals, as you announced. There are some firms out there who do offer convertible loans on terms which are frankly usurious. I believe that Yorkville is best of breed uh, in this respect. If you are a smaller growth company looking for capital, uh, please uh, contact Yorkville Advisors at yorkvilleadvisors.com and don't forget to mention uh, this fine podcast uh, uh, is where you heard about their services. Now, how about an interview? It's a returning guest. My first guest today is Chris Three Brains Bailey, uh, well known as being the cleverest writer uh, on Share Profits. I had Chris on about three months ago in either the first or second edition of Share Profits Radio. I wanted to get him back because I sense the world has changed a bit. Chris, uh, has the world changed? Uh, you know, you do your macroeconomic uh, musings as well as your, your, your micro stuff. Uh, I just sense the world's got a bit gloomier. Yeah, it, it has changed a bit, I think, um, in the sense that we've had a sort of a crazy summer where we've had bonkers tweets and sort of no progress on all sorts of political gubbins. Companies have sort of generally in aggregate kind of downgraded earnings a little bit and stock markets have been all over the place. So, yeah, it, it has changed a little bit, but... I still say we've sort of, at the biggest picture level, we're still grappling ultimately with are, are sort of some of the biggest countries in the world going to blow up global trade? What are we thinking about sort of nine and a half years into an economic upcycle? Why are people so sort of, you know, unbelievably optimistic? What on earth are bond yields doing, which is just, you know, square root of nothing? And then, of course, all the other sort of boring stuff like Brexit and everything else. So just a few oh. things to worry about. Aren't the fact that bond yields are more or less nothing, isn't that telling you that there are issues with the global economy and whether, uh, you know, the biggest economies have a blow up or not? The fact that corporate earnings forecasts are being uh, trimmed 
and trimmed on a regular basis is telling you that the economic climate, or we could talk about your beloved uh, uh, Sheffield insulation, uh, that is a sort of a canary in the coal mine as well. The, the, the economic climate is just getting chillier. Right. Well, bond, bond yields are, are kind of crazy. I mean, in the sense that um, we, we've obviously got very low interest rates in the world, which itself, as you, as you suggest, is kind of indicating something about prospects, which, you know, is a bit grisly. Um, for me, though, uh, bond yields have gone way beyond what you would think about, even at today's suppressed interest rates. You know, I, I was I was taught economics and whatever at a time when you sort of thought, a, you know, a bit of inflation and a bit of growth, the sort of the inflation and growth rates for what were like the building blocks to bond yields. And that's just got completely thrown out um, uh, in, in, when you look at today's bond, bond yield levels. So I think bond, bonds are just completely mad. The trouble is, is that those super low um, interest rate and bond yields, it's justifying absolutely crazy valuations when you have all of these CFA graduates kind of doing their discounted cash flow models and valuing a whole load of rubbish at, you know, some gargantuan level. And that even impacts, it's not just the WeWorks and the Pelotons and other mad IPOs, but actually when you look at sort of a broader range of companies, these sort of high quality kind of um, names, some of the ratings they're on as well, I just can't justify. And, you know, to me, that's the dichotomy in the stock market. You've got this sort of strange sort of grouping of growth hope stocks and actually some sort of bond proxy type names, which are all quite expensive. By contrast, the kind of the cyclical industrial commodity sort of things, a lot of those and it's just no way near in terms of the valuation. And that's where the sort of the value stock picker, even in a sort of a mixed old um, economic environment, can actually find some potential value. Isn't the reason that they are apparently on very low earnings multiples? Well, let's, let's pick up on uh, Sheffield Insulation, where mm. uh, today you were saying, uh, SIG, uh, you were saying today that the shares were a buy as a quid. Uh, I wasn't quite so certain. Um, uh, to recap, the argument is they're going to sell these two businesses. They're going to be sitting on 40 million quid's worth of cash, and the market cap is 600 million, uh, just over a quid. Uh, your argument was the company should do 40 million of operating profit. Therefore, you're effectively playing a reasonably low teens multiple, which isn't demanding. Right. My right. concern right. would be is that I don't believe that that 40 million is necessary necessarily a number you'd bet the ranch on. I would be very concerned that they've had one profits warning today, uh, that there's no in earnings visibility, and everything tells me the economy is starting to snag. Uh, the, not just the British economy, this isn't just Brexit, it's a global thing. And therefore, I wouldn't bet the ranch on them hitting that 40 million number. Mm. So, you know, the, way, the, the pushback I would say is this. Cyclical companies, you know, they are they are buggers to value, basically, because the trouble is, is that you you have to look forward. And, you know, the stock market generally you have to look forward to value companies. You know, it's what's coming rather than what's gone. Now, w when I look at that name and I think to myself, OK, where are they making their money? They're making their money largely in the UK, but certainly very predominantly in the UK and Europe. So it's sort of the pan-European economies. Where are those names? Where are those economies at the moment? You look at the construction PMI, you're absolutely right. Construction PMI in the UK is sort of at 40. When 50 is the neutral level, 40-odd is, you know, 
very, very poor. So clearly you've got already um, pretty shabby conditions. And that re that's reflected in some of the comments, obviously, that SIG made uh, earlier in terms of, you know, their lack of visibility, their profit warning, whatever else. But the question is, what happens next? And this is where cyclicals get interesting. To me, there is no doubt that if you look at the states, Europe, the, um, the, the sort of the, the late end of their cycle, they are late in the economic cycle. You know, President Trump would, is obviously giving the Fed a hard time in order to try to elongate that a little bit more, ideally beyond November 2020. <laughs> By contrast, in, in Europe... You old and, cynic. Well, you know, political business cycle and all of that, you know, we know how it works. And the trouble is actually, as an aside, Trump went early in his stimulus. He should have gone a little bit later, but, you know, that's another story. Um, uh, if you look at other economies around the world, they are sort of what I would call mid-ish cycle. Now, that's because they were late in the QE game, and so they lagged the US's up cycle, and, you know, hence they're now mid-cycle. So if you look at Europe... Um, in pan Europe, Europe, your continent Europe and the UK. If you look at Asia, they're, they're mid cycle. Now, there's no doubt that the states having a few issues or slowing down doesn't help. There is absolutely no doubt that things like world trade disruption absolutely hurts. But if you can get beyond that a little bit, if let's say there's some kind of rationale for a little bit of trade progress and you mix that in with some of the sort of gargantuan efforts of you know, lower interest rates, fiscal spending and everything else that's going on in the world, you could get a little bit of growth or, if you like, a minor growth surprise into 2020 from very low expectations. This is from construction PMIs at 40 in Germany and the UK and everything else. And on that basis is probably your rationale for where SIG potentially is, is a buyer, a quid or less. And yet that's what history would tell you. You go back to those other times it was a quid or less, it was not dissimilar circumstances. Yes, there was a few differences, but broadly speaking, pessimism, depressed earnings, and then they bounce back a little bit. And the factors, as you acknowledge, and you know, we both would agree, they've you know, theoretically fixed their balance sheet with these two disposals they did. That's a good thing, because we all know the absolute killer. You know, you might have a good business. You might be able to find economies that are starting to tick a little bit better potential, not being quite as bad as it looks. But if you've got a crud balance sheet, then that's going to bite you where it hurts. They are doing the sensible thing in, in reducing their debt levels, well, eliminating them completely. So in that sense, that's sort of the rationale for the for sort of the outer favor buy. And my observation would be is that the market's propensity at the moment to buy those stories is negligible. They're all fixated with momentum growth stocks and these bond proxy things. Now, if that changes a bit, then if the market starts to rotate, and we saw a little bit of evidence of that in, in August and September, it's, it's not absolutely sort of um, locked on, but there's a little bit of evidence of that. Then suddenly, 2020 over the next year, these things will actually do a bit better than people think. But what I would say is it's, it's the building blocks are you need to see policymakers actually do a few things like avoid a trade war. You mix that in with the stimulus, which we all know is unsustainable over the longer haul, but may just tactically help. You mix that in with the fact these stocks, these areas, the cyclical, the industrial, the commodity are out of favour. And then you put it in with stocks that have a good balance sheet or in SIG's case, actually have some exposure, some interesting stuff, things like installation, which actually is a thematic growth business. You know, we all want to 
use use resources more efficiently and, and effectively. Um, that that's the genesis of the story, out of favour at multiple levels, and you never know what it may bring. Can I just pick you up there on, on this? Um, a year ago, if we'd been having this conversation, the backdrop would have been of rising interest rates, certainly in the United States, uh, and people talking about when the next rise was going to be in interest rates. Now. Uh, we have Donald Trump wetting his pants talking about how we've got to cut interest rates. Uh, and it's hard to see interest rates in the UK or Europe going anywhere other than down or staying where they are. Isn't that, doesn't that worry you that that, that that is a problem? And it's all very well talking about stimulus um, and, you know, more QE, etc. But isn't that just, I know you're a clean living fellow, so you may not understand it, but isn't it just like uh, stopping a heroin addict from hitting you by giving him more heroin? Um, the answer is st stimulus is fool's gold, that, you know, t t t is the long and the short of it. It, it helps short term. And right, your drug, drink or whatever analogy, you know, I'm sure these demerit type goods, it's a, it's a great old run at the start and then it just det deteriorates. You need more and more, et cetera, et cetera. But stimulus is ultimately fool's gold. And you look at Japan and, you know, I, I like Japan. It's a nice country, you know, would, would highly recommend people go and visit it. But, you know, economically, perma-stimulus there for the last quarter of a century, you know, it's it's bought stability, but, but nothing more than that. And, you know, given Japan's social rigidity and everything else, you know, they've managed to kind of continue moving on despite this lack of economic momentum. I can't see that being apparent in the States or the UK if you had a quarter of a century, broadly speaking, of, of going sideways. Um, so you're absolutely right. Stimulus and related is absolute madness on a sustained basis. No doubt about that. But we've had um, it for so long now. We've had it for a decade. Yeah, we, we have. Um, the reality is, is that we've managed to get away with it because we haven't had any inflation so far, um, in the sense that we've had, get, to get boringly technical about it, the velocity of money has gone down, we haven't had any inflation. That, that may change. And so when I look at what governments are doing at the moment, it's the last chance saloon. They have a little bit more room to do it because the market still seems to want to, you know, enable them to do it. There's still no overt inflationary uh, threat in the, in the short term. And in some cases, you've got this ability to uh, keep on issuing higher fiscal deficits because, you know, the old magic monetary argument, um, interest rates and, and nothing. What is it? Greece was issuing 10 billion euros of debt at 0.88%. Um, at last week, which, you know, is obviously a great bit of business compared to a few years ago, but, you know, we all know that it, it's absolute madness. Um, reality is those conditions, that kind of, if you like, that, that, that window of opportunity will move on because suddenly the quantum of debt will get too high. Uh, we've talked about debt before. Debt is the ultimate suppressor, the ultimate thing to be worried about, and it goes, it goes crazy. But I observe tactically at the moment there's a small window of opportunity and governments are hitting it hard. So what that means for the stock picker, for the investor, is that we've got still slightly fake conditions. I would say if we, we move away from world trade angst into something like sort of world trade issues stuffed under the carpet until after the presidential election, um, markets do have the capability to move up a little bit. I think that's just a supply and demand kind of flow of cash sort of argument. But bigger picture, 2020s, I share your concerns that ultimately too much stimulus, too much debt ain't good. And then we come back to where is the value in markets? And actually, I would still say 
the value in markets are probably ultimately in the you've kind of find it more in the out of favor industrial commodity um, and related areas much more than probably what we would define as kind of growth stocks per se just because you sound of, like neil woodford before you started investing yeah, in fraud well, the thing is but the thing is about neil is that of course he's had now he's he's called it wrong. Obviously, he did a whole load of illiquid weirdo stuff. You know much more about than me. But um, but but ultimately, on his kind of larger cap value stocks, you know, he what he missed was his macro analysis. His the macro analysis said, you know, with these ever low interest rates, actually these CFA analysts were going to justify higher and higher valuations for the bond proxies, the quality stocks, and also the sort of the mad cap growth stocks. Once that game stops. Then suddenly Neil will start Neil's picks will start to look a bit better. Obviously, at that point he'll be running square root of nothing funds under management, so it won't actually matter. But for us who are sort of playing for the longer game here, for sort of the in, next in the, in years, the uh, open prison years, fantasy stock picking league, he'll do really that's well. Right. He's going to be he's going to be a hero, right? You, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you think it's an open prison. Perhaps it, anyway, whatever. Moving on from from you know musings about what level of uh, uh, sort of prison seniority it should be, but more importantly for for those of us thinking about the 2020s, kind of wanting to invest pensions or whatever else we get involved with, actually when this music stops and the stimulus thing um, ends in terms of it's the sort of the free lunch on it, when people start realising that square root of nothing bond yields is absolutely bonkers, when all these CFA analysts suddenly wake up and think, hang on, I can't justify paying or, or 25 times for Diageo or something. It doesn't I'm, make I'm any sense. I'm glad you mentioned Diageo. I was thinking when you were talking about bond proxies, Diageo was exactly the stock I was thinking of. That's right. Well, it's probably, you probably got a a bottle of something nearby, Tom. It's sort of osmosis or something. You've sort of just thought about it. But um, the absolutely, it's completely mad. How on earth can you justify buying Diageo shares today? I just can't do it. The stock is... The yield is, is what, out. 1%? And uh, oh. as you say, P of 25 for a business, yeah. which is probably just going to grow at marginally greater rates than the economy in terms of sales. That's that's right. It's a you know it's good brands. It's a global business. The Chinese are drinking more. Tick the box and all of those. Absolutely. That 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 is. I don't know. The bad news is I'm not drinking anything. That should be a that's a, a profits warning for them. But that's, that's that's good. I'm sure a few Chinese will pick up the slack or something. But um, the, the 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 better news is is that. Um, you know, Jetio shares should be mid to higher teens sort of multiple. You know, global, sensible business, good brands, wadi wah. But 25 times doesn't make any, it only makes sense if you have these, if you put these bonkersly low interest rates in and kind of assume that it's going to be the case for forever. And it isn't. So I think when that music stops, when that game starts to change, perhaps there's an inflationary threat somewhere pops up. Perhaps it's just the, the quantum of debt being issued. Somebody says the emperor has no clothes. Bond yields go up. Suddenly, all of those things will look a bit expensive. What will look cheaper is, is certainly lurking much more in the, what at the moment is the sort of out of favor mainstream areas, um, which, which would clearly encompass the industrial, the cyclical, the commodity centered, the financial even, for goodness sake. Um, you know, they would be the ones where I would, as a stock picker, get more excited. But, but only, I suspect, we would agree where a company has got net cash, not where it's drowning in debt. 
And this is it. You did the extra filter then. That's the macro. So that's what, long story, that's what Neil got wrong. Mr. Woodford got wrong the macro sort of gubbins backdrop. But as that changes, suddenly the sort of the value areas come right. But then you're absolutely right. You've still then got a shabby changing world. So what then do you have to do? You have to then do your classic bottom-up analysis, which involves, yes, balance sheets and cash flow as the as the core component. And, and then that's where too much debt in those areas uh, or, or just shabby businesses, bad management, whatever else, you know, ain't going to cut it. Let's talk about shabby businesses, bad management and crop balance sheets. Aston Martin Lagonda. Uh, it's gone bust six times. Uh, it failed. Uh, no, did it fail to get a bond issue away or did it just have to pay an enormous coupon? Yeah, well, it, it just, I think it just paid an enormous coupon. I mean, 12%. 12%. It issued effectively a junk bond a year after an IPO. I know. It, it's it's absolutely crazy. I mean, I uh, it, it, it wasn't quite a keep the lights on placing, but it's kind of a couple of steps removed from that. And, you know, under certain circumstances, that 12% bond becomes a 15% one. I mean, it's just, you know, you look at what um, you and I could raise money from the bank at or what any sensible company could get a big whacking corporate loan on. That tells you that um, the banks really just don't trust Aston Martin. Um, it's it's a horrible mess. The trouble is cars, it's, it's a very operationally geared business. We all know that. Um, and as you say, the history of Aston Martin suggests that periodic problems in their history is just uh, uh, something... It's gone bust six times. Do you think it could go bust the seventh time? Yeah, it's, it's clearly very plausible. I think the only thing in its favour now from not going bust is that I guess having a, a market listing, there might be some madcap, well-heeled um, shake or something who decides to, to give it a go at some point as a as a as a plaything uh, rather than investing in in oil and gas or something so or i think that's clubs. the that's, or football clubs indeed but um so i think you know that that's that's the one option i say with the market listing it sort of in a weird way makes that maybe a little bit easier but as we all know uh, the market listing of course gives you a lot more publicity and and all the other negatives associated with that Bad publicity. I mean, l l recapping, issuing a bond, whether the yield's 12% or it might become 15%, the companies which have had to issue bonds at that sort of level that I can remember are companies like Avanti, uh, which uh, has effectively, you know, is delisted and shareholders have lost all their money. Uh, the history is not good. 12, 12 to 15% is junk bond territory, isn't it? It's and particularly today's low. You know, we talked about ultra low interest rates. You know, this is the crazy thing. In Japan, they had a junk bond issue issuance at one percent interest rate. That that was junk bond levels in Japan. Can you believe? In the UK or the US, it's about a four percent yield. So twelve percent is stratospherically deep in junk bond territory. You know, it's sort of the mindless bonkers territory. Um, so absolutely, uh, you know, this the is FCA warn you warn you that if uh, if investments uh, uh, looked too good to be true. I think in their warning level is anything yielding over 8 or 9 percent, or is that the right. Solicitor's Regulation Authority, that you should be wary about it. Yeah, this company, and the thing is, it's just a year after the IPO. It's amazing. It's, you know, the dodginess of the, of the IPO document. I bet if you read it now, the massive holes that are apparent, um, it, it would just make you blush, really. It, would, well, it wouldn't make you and me blush. It would make people associated with the listing um, advisors and related blush. I think the trouble is, is that um, they, a year ago, or just under a year ago, you know, it was a time when anything seemed possible. We're back again to this world of ultra-low interest rates, 
clever DCF-driven models and valuations, and, you know, it's starting to come unstuck. You know, you look at WeWork, you look at Peloton, you look at that, what was that silly thing, that Smile or whatever it was called, that dental company in America, all the same. Basically, massive holes in the IPO documents, you know, questionable business models, certainly very questionable finances. Investors are starting to wake up. And to me, this is the sign that actually in the 2020s, Guess what? Number one, returns are going to be lower than the than the last ten years. That that's a that's a given. But the rotation that's starting to go on now, I think, is ultimately healthy, very healthy, where we get away from some of this some of this stuff that clearly shouldn't be right up there. There has been talk that uh, Aston Martin uh, might change its board. Now, you did a piece uh, for Share Profits where I think your conclusion was yes, management matters. I wonder with Aston Martin, they could bring, uh, you know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk for some uh, sort of industry expertise on board. It wouldn't really, cha- wouldn't really change the, the outlook, would it? Right, it wouldn't. When because... a good manager meets a, with a, a meets, with a manager with a good reputation meets a company with a bad reputation, it's the latter that uh, remains intact. Right, that's right, absolutely, and um, yeah, that that is absolutely quite true. Look, the, the, I think the thing is. A smart manager or smart management team from the get-go would actually have used the IPO to have made sure the balance sheet was rock solid because that, that would have been the wise thing to do. If they'd have, at the time of the IPO, said, look, guys, you know, classically, we're coming out of sort of a strange private equity ownership or whatever it was. Um, we're actually now going to put the balance sheet back in good order to give us the growth platform for the next five years. Everyone would have said, mm, you know, that's kind of what companies come to the stock market to do sometimes. But what they did do was they had sort of a patchy kind of um, IPO, something which seemed to, you know, uh, pay a variety of the shareholders quite well and and just didn't put the balance sheet in good order from the get-go, which is what they should have done when conditions were somewhat easier. They could have probably got bond issues away at 4 or 5% or an equity issue away at, uh, you know, a not dissimilar uh, relative cost. But they didn't. And that's an inexperienced management team. That's a management team that's used to running a company under private equity ownership rather than the pressures of the stock market or the financial market. Or put market. another way, it's, it's, it's greedy, greedy owners. Um, you, one other management team, before I let you go, uh, Metro Bank, you've been very bearish about that. <laughs> we have seen now that its chairman, who seems to be <clears throat> somewhat confused about the, uh, the dividing line between business and personal interests, shall we put it that way, um, it is about to go. They're going to get a new yes. guy in. They have managed, having failed to get a bond issue away, they've now managed to get a bond issue away. Is Metro Bank the great recovery story for 2020? I don't think so. Because I, I say that because for, for two reasons. Number one is um, I, I'm still seeing no sign that they've ultimately addressed the sort of the shambolic range of problems that they've got, be it. Um, questionable quality of loans, be it um, clearly behind the times compliance and related. Sure, they're sticking plaster all over the business. Um, the equity money raising, I guess, has, has, has sort of ultimately been done. Even the management team is starting, as you say, the chair is, is to go by the end of the year, assuming they find somebody to replace him. That's the caveat there. So there are sort of sticking plaster improvements. But ultimately, is it a massive recovery stop? No, I don't think so. Because um, if, if you know, what, what are the outcomes here? You know, they could kind of 
conceivably trade their way out of it, except the trouble is it's not exactly an uncompetitive banking environment at the moment. They've got a confused strategy. And what I worry about is that all of this kind of bad publicity that's been kicking around for the last few months, what impact is that having on the deposit book? Because that's the thing which ultimately would tip it into another crisis if the deposit book started to tip down again. We saw some signs of that a few months ago but nothing sort of too huge. Um, the other aspect, I guess, the great white hope for many people is that somebody will buy it. Um, this is this is what your great admirer, Richard Jennings of Align Research, who yes. called this spectacularly wrong all year, uh, yes. unlike yourself. He seems to think that the idea is that it's trading at a discount to NAV, so someone could buy it, just wind the operations down and make a profit. Uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's a simple logic to that, but the trouble is... We all know that financial businesses are very, very geared. And it's not as simple as just looking at some illusionary or semi-illusionary NAV and just equating that, you know, 100% to the value in the business. You know, as we've seen, there's plenty of, there's actually, it's far easier to say of the established banks in the world, which ones are trading above book rather than the ones that are trading below book. Um, so it's not easy. And my observation is if, if there was a buyer out there who fancied doing that, then they're clearly going to be buying it at a, a material discount to book. And given I can spot a variety of, you know, established and half reasonable banks out there uh, with, I, I would argue, much stronger capital positions trading at sort of, you know, 0 0.7, 0 0.8 book, um, why on earth would you pay more than a 0 0.2, 0 0.3 or 0 0.4 book for this, even assuming it's stabilised up? The big risk, as I say, going back to, to the depositors, that's what would ultimately, you know, pull the rug from under your feet on this. If, if I was a buyer, a, a trade buyer, I would be chilling. And Cerberus, you know, the, um, the sort of the distressed debt people, they bought a book of, of business from them, a, a book of um, loans from them. And I think that's the way it goes. You know, if somebody wants to buy it, they're going to do a piecemeal kind of um, uh, sort of, you know, looking at it just a piecemeal loan basis rather than buying the whole thing with all the other legacy issues and whatever else. That's the way I would do it in any case. You don't believe them now because you think that they're going to have material bad debt issues, don't you? Well, ultimately, yes, because the trouble is they're late in the game and they're late in the game with a confused strategy. And, and that is a not a good combination, really. Um, we, we all know that um, and we've seen it with Funding Circle, we've seen it with other companies. When you come into something late and, and when you're trying to do something differentiated from the sort of the Lloyds and the RBSs and whatever in this world, you know, th those businesses can be criticised, but ultimately, you know, they're, they're highly experienced businesses which sort of have seen just a few cycles over, over time. And un unsurprisingly, businesses, consumers, they're happy to gravitate towards them. They feel, you know, in quotes, safe with them. You know, in some cases, you know, they'd probably regret that thought. But but there you go. You know, they're the ones who've hoovered up much of the business. You know, I look at something like HSBC want to get much more into mortgages and loans in the UK. Guess what? Metro Bank or HSBC, who are you going to go for if you're at the margin thinking about it? You're going to go for HSBC. You're not necessarily going to go for Metro Bank. So these things can fall on themselves. And, and hence, yeah, I ultimately think... They, they, they could well have a burgeoning bad debt problem. I think they may have grown through some, some, some you know, surprising loans to people that, that, that other banks didn't want to do business with. That's, also, I just think, yeah. 
that is the key. I mean, it's funding circle as well, which I think you would all is yes. another one which you think could go to zero. Is if you join the party so late in the game, so late in the economic cycle, you are lending money to or arranging business for people who can't borrow money elsewhere. Precisely. Precisely. That's right. And and ultimately, that that's you know, the potential for that to be bad loan material is clearly materially higher. So I think. I would watch the deposit at a level on Metroband very carefully. I think that's the next thing to watch in the next set of numbers. Sure, they can reshuffle the debt chairs on the Titanic or the management team or whatever, but I still kind of think, you know, would you be wanting to buy this one, chase the illusionary low price to book level? You know, I think there are a lot easier things to be doing. Um, like like SIG, for example. Like SIG, obviously. Uh, so Metro Bank certainly not one to chase, perhaps not one to short at this level. It's, yeah, it's fallen I mean, up. I think yeah, it, it's it's clear. Look, it's gone from over thirty quid to you know kicking around two quid in in less than two years. In fact, much almost just just about a year. So clearly, there's been a lot of a lot of um, negativity priced in, but quite rightly so. Um, yeah, I mean, people getting all excited about it returning to five or six quid. Honestly, you know, what are they smoking? Um, and, and funding circle, that, on the other hand, is one that could be a zero. Oh, absolutely, because funding circle, it, it's it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's again, this very poor quality lending. Um, it's got a bizarre business model, you know, and, and frankly, I think some of these um, uh, sort of schemes which where, where they raise money in strange ways, um, that the level of um, insight, the fact that we've had some press reports about them kind of um, extending the, 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 the when they pay money out, the cycles there, the, the cash flow out payment cycles, you know, that is all sniffing kind of really, you know, it's that, that's a very messy situation. You know, I just think funding circle again, a highly inexperienced management team, they tapped the market for sort of an excitable sounding product um, at the time. Some some idiots fell for it, it IPO'd successfully, and it's been downhill all the way since. You know, that that yes, you're absolutely right. There's gearing inherent in that. There's there's potentially mis-selling or at least misinterpretation of 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 where you know what these products could do and how quickly you can get your money out. It's not good. Okay, on that cheery note. Thanks very much, Chris. Uh, now go and don't have a cigarette, uh, uh, alcohol or anything else. Carry on clean living. We'll speak again oh. in a couple of months. Clean living and value investing is the best way around. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you, Chris Bailey. That was most informative. If you're uh, a cheapskate, uh, you're too poor or too mean uh, or too short-sighted not to subscribe to shareprofits.com at a cost of just $5.99 a month for 300 articles and podcasts a month. Uh, you might not know who Chris Bailey is. Uh, most of the material on ShareProfits, the website that's high edit, uh, comes from the pack of attack wolves, uh, people looking for shorting ideas, companies that are telling lies, companies that are committing fraud, individuals who are committing fraud within the broader financial services industry. Uh, the uh, uh, attack pack of wolves, Nigel Somerville, myself, Lucian Myers, Gary Newman, Peter Braley. Uh, 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 that is what we do. Uh, Chris is a bit of an oddity on the site. Uh, he writes not generally about smaller company stocks. He writes about FTSE 100, FTSE 350 stocks. Occasionally, uh, he descends into what he refers to as the AIM cesspit, but to look at the larger stocks on the AIM cesspit. 
generally. Uh, uh, Chris Bailey's uh, articles are on the bull tack. Uh, he's looking for buying opportunities. In the dim and distant past, he used to run a fund which was uh, uh, predominantly long but did have short positions. These days, he says he doesn't go shorting stocks uh, 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 very much, if at all. Uh, his portfolio is entirely long and it is for long opportunities he looks. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he has done some uh, uh, superb analysis of companies, including uh, Metro Bank and Funding Circle. Uh, also, Dignity uh, uh, was another great call by Chris Bailey on the bear tack. So, he provides both bull and bear commentary, but predominantly his analysis is, is, his analysis is uh, of that uh, of a bull. He's looking for buying opportunities. Uh, as I say, to access Chris's articles, he does about four or five a week, uh, uh, as well as uh, the other 280 articles and podcasts which appear on Share Profits, costs you just $5.99 a month. Uh, you can save that with just one good call where we expose a fraud uh, or where we reveal uh, uh, where a heavily discounted placing uh, is being planned. Uh, just over the past week, our major triumph in that regard has been uh, Rehobold, uh, a uh, oil company, not a total tiddler on the AIM casino. Uh, we pushed out a story on, I think it was the 1st of October, uh, uh, saying that the company was doing a book build and was going to be doing a placing looking to raise 20 to 20, 20 to 30 million. Uh, it has just confirmed uh, that it, in fact, has raised 24 million uh, 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 at uh, 0.9p, which was a lot less than uh, uh, the share price when we broke this story at 1.2p. Uh, uh, the company was forced to confirm that our story was essentially true within hours of it coming out. Nonetheless, by uh, uh, running that placing, uh, we saved any of our readers who were invested in Rearbold uh, a phenomenal uh, amount of money because they were able to sell uh, 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 when we ran the story before the shares came off a lot. That's uh, the sort of thing you get on Share Profits on a daily basis. Uh, and I do hope that if you enjoy these free podcasts, I know that about uh, 80% of the people listening to this free podcast uh, are too mean uh, uh, or maybe don't know enough about Share Profits and have not yet subscribed. If you enjoy this free podcast here, uh, do seriously think about investing five ninety nine in joining Share Profits for the full experience. It's not just me. It is Chris Bailey, Nigel Somerville, a very gifted analysis specialist, Neil Woodford and Woodford Stocks, Gary Newman, uh, uh, and Peter Braley, our resources experts, uh, and of course uh, Steve Moore, uh, a man who has spent all but one month of his working career working with me and so it tends to think along similar lines. Anyhow, join that. This podcast is free, of course. Uh, it is brought to you thanks to the kind sponsorship of uh, Yorkville. Uh, Yorkville provides debt, equity, convertible loans uh, to smaller and growth companies across the world. Uh, uh, it is, in my view, one of the best of breed providers of such capital. If you're a small growth company and you're looking for finance, uh, uh, get in contact with Yorkville Advisors and make sure uh, uh, that you mention where you heard about them. That's the sale of this fine podcast. Uh, that'll be, uh, they can be contacted via the website, yorkvilleadvisors.com. Now, uh, we've had Chris, who's mainly uh, a, a bull, but occasionally a bear. 
Now for someone who's a full-blown bear. My next guest is Gabrielle Grego of Quintessential Asset Management. Uh, Gabrielle, first. Sorry? Sorry. It's quintessential capital management. Quint- I apologise for that, Gabriel. Gabriel first sprang to fame uh, where uh, in the UK market, at least, when he exposed the fraud that was Globo. Uh, readers of share profits know about Folly Folly, uh, uh, another Greek fraud, uh, uh, one where I got uh, chased away from the headquarters by Burley security guards. Uh, it also has gone bust. Uh, and then uh, recently we had Bio On, a company on the Italian-aimed casino which Gabrielle exposed. Uh, welcome to the show, Gabrielle. I wonder, Globo, what's happened to the to the Costas or whatever it was called, the fellow who ran it? Well, honestly, after we deal with a company in a definitive way, we don't bother with it that much anymore, and we only look at it for academic reasons. What I can tell you is that, as far as I know, there haven't seemed to be uh, any serious consequences for the perpetrators, unfortunately. I heard that... Uh, the uh, former CEO and controlling shareholder Costis uh, has been spotted in some Greek island doing windsurfing by multiple people. So either he's getting trials or he got away with it, which is very sad to see. By, as a reminder, not only did he take a vast salary, uh, but when the FT tipped him off about uh, your report, uh, uh, he, he promptly sold sale. nearly all his shares in the market. So he's made millions and millions of pounds from this fraud. And here we are, was it five years later? He's, um, he's windsurfing. Yeah, exactly the way. I mean, the problem is that when this kind of things happen and there is no strong action from the authorities, let alone that the uh, many of the frauds go undiscovered for a long time, but if they do get discovered um, and then there is no consequence for the perpetrators, that sends a horrible message that uh, everyone does pay. they want and there is no deterrence. Indeed. We often get attacked, you as a, as a short seller, but an activist short seller, and you publish reports. Uh, me, I never go short, uh, but I, I, I expose companies uh, uh, for being frauds and, and for lying. We often get attacked. Uh, people say we're wicked and immoral. We destroy great companies. Uh, we're only talking our own book. All we care about is making a profit. Uh, short sellers are prepared to lie, uh, we're told. Um, in order to achieve uh, uh, their goals. Uh, and we don't create anything of value. Are you a bad man, Gabriel? I don't like to uh, praise myself. But I, can, I can talk in general about short sellers. Um, I would say that there is a lot of misunderstanding for our job, for what we do, what we believe in, and what our methods are. So the uh, consensus among retail investors, for example, is that we're just a bunch of speculators that would stop at nothing, and that would lie or manipulate as long as to make a quick buck. I can tell you that in the vast majority of uh, people that I know, and there are a few people that uh, decide to take their chances and embrace this profession, the vast majority are actually highly ethical people. Um, and uh, number one. Number two, the, the blatant lying or consciously manipulating is actually reckless for, for a short seller and he would get punished very quickly. We are under incredible amount of scrutiny, first of all from the authorities, second from the media, uh, third from public opinion itself. So there is no way that we can uh, lie or do 
or behave it in an unethical way and get away with it, uh, certainly not on a, on a general scale. So my view is that activist short sellers are a critical, critical part of the market and have a critical function, which is essentially to um, allow the market to self-police, to police itself. Um, there is no way the authorities that can control simultaneously and preventively uh, the more than 10,000 public uh, companies that trade around the world. That is completely impossible. So the authorities sometimes uh, do a great job, uh, a great reactive job. In other words, uh, post facto, after a fraud has been flagged by someone else, and you know, hopefully they go and they prosecute it, but it's almost impossible for the regulatory bodies to um, preemptively um, stop this, uh, this fraud from occurring. Only the market can do that, and the way it does that is by uh, having capitalism do its thing, which is essentially providing a set of incentives for doing due diligence, for taking the risk of presenting a thesis publicly, and, um, and essentially doing our work as active short sellers. Yes, some people will get hurt. It's undeniable. Um, current shareholders in a fraud will likely uh, show massive losses or even 100% losses. But on the other hand, you need to look at the big picture, which is what is the alternative? Most of these frauds are actually based on a pyramidal structure, which means that they don't have any real profit. They don't generate any real cash flows. So the only way to stay afloat is if they keep growing and they keep uh, pulling in more capital in, uh, in forms of share issues or bank debt or bonds. In other words, they keep sucking and sucking more capital which eventually is anyway destined to collapse. So current shareholders will get killed anyway, and future shareholders will also uh, arguably lose everything unless somebody comes in and takes these frauds out of the market while they're still small. So that is the incredible benefit. So look at Enron, or look at Folly Folly, or look at any other large fraud. It would have been a lot better if somebody like us or like many of the people that... Uh, uh, that you report in your publication every day would have stepped in when the company were a lot smaller and stopped them in their track rather than allow them to grow and grow and grow. And then when they do fall, uh, of course, the, uh, the losses are monumental. In that sense, we, uh, I think we, we provide a service to the market. Number two, and I really believe this, I think that we're also deterrent. Um, companies will think about it twice, certainly in the markets where we have operated in the past, to perpetrate a blatant fraud because they know that uh, now we're out there looking for, for suspicious signs and uh, we will not hesitate for a moment to strike mercilessly if we come across other frauds. Do you, I mean, it, it, the, the, there's two issues uh, about uh, uh, the idea that short sellers spread lies, etc., etc. One of our critics, uh, 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 Roger Lawson, a, a shareholder in Globo uh, of ShareSock, uh, once noted that one particular short seller had planted a bomb in Germany in order to help his position and extrapolated from that, you never know the lengths to which all short sellers will go to. Um, but but if, if you put out a report, Gabrielle, which was pure fiction, uh, you might make a short-term killing, but uh, your reputation would be destroyed, wouldn't it? Well, not only that. First of all, let, let's answer the first thing you said. Short sellers and activist short sellers are like any other people. So there are good actors and there are bad actors. I'm only saying that in general, most of the people that I met in this trade tend to be probably of better than average morality. 
um, because they have a sense of uh, um, indignation when they witness fraud and, and, and they have the courage to do something about it. But on the other hand, I'm sure there are some of them which like to cut corners, to say the least. That said, and I don't know what is the experience with other short sellers. In my experience, I do the utmost uh, to make sure that whatever I write is 100% accurate. And keep in mind that we're dealing with uncertainty here. So sometimes you have uncertain information. So you have a set of facts. I always try to publish all the facts that lead me to uh, come to a certain opinion and a certain conclusion and express whatever conclusion as an opinion. So that and I usually also give the tools to the reader to make sure he can try to reverse engineer some of the thought process and some of the investigation that leads me to a certain conclusion. So if you read my reports, you will see um, that you will find a strikingly high level of precision. For example, Foley Foley, after almost six months of due diligence made by forensic accountants, they understood that 80% of the revenue was fabricated, and we said the number close to, I think, 78%. So we're very, very accurate, and it's very unlikely that you catch us publishing anything that is inaccurate. When you do, and inevitably, if you're writing a 100-page report, there will be a fact or two or an assertion or two that don't check out 100%, but that only reflects the inherent uncertainty of what it is that we're doing, right? So sometimes you may have a source that, that is mis misleading, or you may have a data that can be interpreted both ways. And whenever we find ambiguous information, we try to point it out and, and warn the reader that this piece of information or that piece of information um, might not be 100% accurate. But the important thing is that as a whole, the report is truthful and published in good faith and researched to the highest possible standards available. And, um, and that the report includes also this confirming evidence so that the reader can make up his own mind. So, this is the standard that I try to follow whenever I'm publishing something. And even then, I get enormous amount of backlash, certainly from public opinion at the beginning, certainly from media, which sometimes are very friendly to, the, to the, our target companies. And sometimes we get attention from regulators as well. And keep in mind that we always got away with it because we write the truth. So I don't understand how somebody can lie and get away with it uh, in a way that makes them want to do them. It makes them want to behave like this consistently. It strikes me that uh, when we look at cases of market abuse, of people spreading false rumors, etc., 99% of the time it's on the it's, it's bears who are doing that. Uh, sorry, bulls who are doing that rather than the bears. Yet they seem they seem, they seem uh, never to be criticized. There is a double standard. You know, people. Uh, you know, uh, you know the legend of Cassandra, or you know the uh, myth of you know. Socrates in the cave, people that say the truth, when it is an uncomfortable truth, uh, they're bound to uh, receive a lot of criticism, whereas people who lie, as long as they are, uh, they are telling everybody cool aid or good things, then uh, people accept them. So yes, there is a very, very powerful double standard. So a tiny little thing of a piece of imprecision may have draconian consequences for a short seller, but no consequences whatsoever for a long. So there is a double standard. We have to deal with it and live with it. And that's why there are so few of us out there, I think. Yeah, one of the things which, uh, of course, is that you, when you do publish a report is that the levels of uh, hatred that you uh, sort of generate uh, from public opinion. Uh, you're right, from the press, because press, are, you know, I believe the financial press is corrupt and does what PR people tell it to do. Uh, investigative journalism is dead. Uh, and also, of course, from... 
uh, largely existing retail shareholders. Thinking of Folly Folly as a case study, uh, that was a sort of iconic Greek company, wasn't it? It was seen as a great success of Greece. It was, absolutely. Also because it was a, a brand that everybody was familiar with. So even, first of all, it used to be, I think, the number three or number four company by size in Greece. But I would say uh, it was even more prevalent than that because it was a large company with a very strong brand. So you could probably say that it was Greece, Greece's strongest brand. And of course, when a non-Greek person, uh, quote-unquote, attacks an iconic brand like that, uh, people get upset. But I have to say that compared to other countries, with hindsight, Greece was not even that bad. And I have to admit that the newspapers, uh, yeah, they were a little bit skeptical at the beginning, but the moment that the truth started to come out, they uh, changed the tune very quickly. And this has not always been happening in every place where we have been operating, unfortunately. And the Greek regulators, to give them credit, they were hard on the company and on its accountants rather than on you. Well, they, uh, of course, they, they didn't ignore us completely. I would say that very quickly they asked us a bunch of questions and rightfully they wanted to see all of the evidence. And of course, every time that we publish a report or a presentation, we are unable to publish all of the evidence just because it's, it's monumentally large. Uh, but, uh, you know, so they asked us that. We provided all the information that they wanted to see. Uh, they were very thorough and I think they were satisfied. And they did the same thing with the company. So they asked the company to provide, uh, definitely to redo their accounting, which would take, took quite a while, but they told them also to show their bank balances to make sure that cash, existing cash, corresponded to whatever they were saying in their financial statements. And uh, when the company was unable to show those cash balances, that's uh, when they suspended the stock only three weeks after our intervention. So, yes, I would say they work pretty fast, maybe the fastest that we've ever seen. The odd thing about Folly Folly was that it was possible for me to verify uh, when I was then living in Bristol that they were lying about the number of stores in the UK uh, just because I went along to one of their concessions and they told me it was shutting and told me all the other ones that were shutting. And so I knew that they were telling lies about the, the size of their British operations. And I remember you, of course, did... did <laughs> yeah, I know, it was fun. Um, great thanks to that lady at the concession in Bristol. Um, you, of course, did far greater work on, um, uh, and the initial work, on all of those Chinese concessions they were claiming. How did you manage to, pr to, to show that they were just bogus? Well, we actually, we didn't check only the Chinese. We checked one by one each and every single one of the, of the shops that they claimed to have. And they were something like... Uh, I think fully, fully branded. There were over 600 shops. So, and this is an interesting thing because you, sorry, a, did you check them physically? You you sent people no, around to knock no, on doors. No, no. What we did very simply, we we checked them on the phone, and uh, in some cases uh, we checked out through Google Map and that sort of thing. So what we did is there was no single database with all of the shops available, but there was the. Um, uh, the option of going into their website and find this uh, shop locator, which basically tells you, you can enter the name of this town you're in and the area, and it tells you there is a shop around. So essentially, we, uh, I hired a programmer who wrote a simple program, which essentially extracted all, in, all of the information systematically from that shop locator. So after a while, we had a full Excel database 
with all of the shops showing up and the phone numbers and the address. So what we did is we systematically called all of those phone numbers and, and we uh, noted uh, which shops were operational, which shops were definitely closed and which shops were suspected closed. Then what I did is I took a selection of say 20 shops among the, uh, the most important ones, those that for example were based in large world capitals and I singled those out for personal inspection. And in most cases, I showed up myself, just like you did in the, in the UK. And I think Bloomberg did a few verifications too, and so did the Financial Times after yours. So why am I saying this? <clears throat> well, these database, this Excel spreadsheet that had all of the shops inside and the telephone number, the addresses, and whether the shop was open or not, was not uh, kept uh, hidden in our computers. We actually published this database publicly together with the presentation. And the reason why we published it and we said that is to allow all of the skeptical readers to reverse engineer our findings. So if you're reading that and you're in France and you, say, and you live in Paris and there are three shops in Paris, you could go and check them out, just like you did in the UK, just like a few journalists did in other places. And what always appalls me, and it's very unfortunate, but on the other hand, it assures that we will always have a job, is that those, um, for example, retail shareholders who are so thorough into doing due diligence on myself, my family, uh, my religion, or inventing all sorts of conspiracy theories to a very precise extent, they don't do even the minimal effort uh, that would be required to check out for themselves the validity or, or acquaintance, for example, by going into their uh, into the city where they where they uh, hang out and go see for themselves whether a shop that we declared closed was actually closed. Now this pattern happens every time. So we give all the information to the readers to reverse engineer the thesis, and people just ignore it and uh, and they keep uh, drinking the Kool Aid. That is very sad. I had uh, today, Gabrielle, I, I exposed a company on uh, AIM called Bidstack, uh, which, uh, whose CEO told an absolutely blatant lie uh, about the company's half-year profits, uh, a lie which within six weeks was shown to be a lie uh, uh, by a, of a monumental scale. So I pointed this out and said, I think that the authorities need to have a look at this gentleman and his company. And uh, someone posted on a bulletin board, Tom Winifred, he's only writing this because he's paid by the Israelis and the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> the Israelis being me, or who did he mean? <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. But, you know, if, if anyone at Mossad or uh, the KGB is listening, uh, just send us the check. I'll look you're, forward you're to receiving it. I could do with a few quid. Um, but, uh, yes, the reaction of people in terms of trolling you is, is, is one yeah, that you I, get used to. I've got to tell you uh, this one because this is so funny. With buy on. Uh, this reached the epitome. If you actually go, I mean, your readers probably don't understand Italian, but for the few who do, I invite them to check out the chat immediately after our uh, exposing of the company. And you see that, uh, first of all, it's full of anti-Semitic uh, cliches, which is very sad to see. I've only seen this, this one time, actually. And then basically what happened is they... Um, they figured out clearly that I'm that I'm Jewish, uh, since I'm also Israeli. They they saw in some old website that my dad used to work for the Italian Stock Exchange something like 25 years ago. One of the accountants that I use to uh, review the accounts of the company is Jewish, 
And finally, this is random, I did not even know, the president of the Italian Stock Exchange in Italy happens to be Jewish. So somebody came up with this conspiracy theory, therefore this is a whole Jewish attack on a virtuous Italian company, <laughs> whereby I would write the report, my dad and this other Jewish guy from the Stock Exchange would keep the stock from, from going up by manipulating the automatic suspension mechanism, and uh, the crooked Jewish auditor would provide a, a biased opinion in order to uh, damage the reputation of the company. And you have no idea how many people bought into this thing and kept repeating and repeating it over and over. <laughs> in, instead of just doing what they could have done, checking out the balance sheet and the income statements of the subsidiary company that showed that there is no revenue whatsoever, that there are no assets whatsoever, and that all of the revenue essentially is fictitious. No. And that tells you something about human nature, at least human nature of some people whereby confirmation bias and wishful thinking are so powerful to prevent them from, uh, from coming and doing, taking an informed decision or coming to an objective, unbiased opinion. Now, Bion, you, you exposed in your report quite clearly that this was a fraud. Um, from memory, the, uh, the, the, the regulators uh, said that they were both going to be investigating you and also the company. Well... Kind of. What, well, two things happened. First of all, the first thing we did, even before publishing the report, since having done this for quite a few times now, I started to understand the, probably the best practices here. So we actually visited the regulators uh, before publishing the report and uh, handed them a copy and, uh, and informed them of what was our intention, what we were planning to do. So this is first of all. And second, and, and by giving them a copy, we, we implicitly... Uh, denounced the uh, nefarious activities of the company, the alleged nefarious activities of the company. That's, that's how it all started. Then we published their report. Two days later, the company uh, showed up to the Italian police and complained for, uh, filed a defamation complaint against us. And um, maybe triggered by this defamation complaint, the public prosecutor of Bologna started an investigation into the event against unknowns. Okay, so did not quote us or the company specifically, but they made it clear that they were looking both into our allegations and into the company's responses. Um, so two months have passed since then. We, I mean, the market hasn't really heard from them again until a few days ago after the company published a disastrous first year report. And uh, even... I mean, the, the results were disastrous, and um, the day, one day after, the uh, CONSOB, which is the Italian equivalent of the FCA, forced the company to improve the disclosure and admit that the uh, resignation of the nomads were not random, as the company seemed to imply, but were actually caused by breach of fiduciary duty and lack of collaboration and a bunch of other clarifications. So, and to, this morning, CONSOB uh, confirmed they're looking very closely into the companies, into its advisor and its joint venture partners. So now we know that they're investigating heavily. Um, so they, yeah, so definitely they're definitely doing something, but the investigation is not over yet. But you'd be feeling, given the the, the nomad departing and the disaster results, uh, you'd be feeling reasonably relaxed about this one. Oh yeah, I mean, I felt reasonably relaxed all along because I knew I was in the right, and I knew that the. Uh, the uh, report was very thorough and, and very well researched. And uh, at the end of the day, I have reasonable trust in the authorities. And uh, I knew that the, the evidence was so uh, 
in one directional that uh, they, at the end of the day they would have come to the same conclusion that, that we did. Okay. Now, in t- I mean, discovering these companies, Bion, Global, uh, uh, Globo, uh, uh, Folly, Folly, etc., mm-hmm. one wonders, how is it that you stumble upon, I mean, it's sort of one a year that you're, you're doing, um, how is it that you you stumble upon these companies? Obviously, you know, the, I understand there's a global Jewish conspiracy and you're being fed information <laughs> by the Mossad and everybody, but other than that, is, is there any other uh, reason you're able to discover them? No, I think it's very often the same names seem to uh, go around many of the people which are in our profession. And we receive every day a number of, uh, every day or every week, a number of ideas from any party. Can be a former disgruntled employee, can be, um, you know, maybe just some concerned citizen that is, for some reason, is aware of the fraud. Very often is uh, fellow uh, short sellers that uh, either for policy or for any other reason, they prefer not to be activists. And um, that's one idea. Sometimes is uh, uh, maybe other short sellers that see that there is something wrong with the company, but they don't have the in-house investigative skills that you need to, so to speak, solve the puzzle. So the best kind of ideas come from our colleagues, so to speak. And then every once in a while, we use some kind of automatic software, the screens for uh, things such as uh, using a dodgy auditor, having large discrepancies between cash flows and earnings in industries where you wouldn't expect that, or we have a database of crooked uh, board members which have been, um, which have been um, involved in frauds in the past. There are even some law firms and some auditing firms that they seem to be specialized in representing fraud. And uh, so one of the things we do is we look at who their clients are and then uh, we see if among the clients will we find something interesting. The idea of short sellers collaborating would no doubt get a uh, 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 bulletin board more on salivating the idea of a global shorting conspiracy. Um, but suffice to say, if you've got a cracking idea or if uh, Carson Block has got a cracking idea, the last thing he's going to do is tell you about it before he's gone short and written his dossier. If he's actually, no, I, mean, I mean, Carson Block is a, I would say that he's a firm, maybe it's the other way around because it started much earlier than us. So we try to do exactly the same thing that they are doing. So we I think we have a similar style. We look for total frauds. We do our investigation in-house and we do our exposing in-house. Okay, so it's unlikely that Carson comes to us and gives us an idea because they will pursue it themselves. But what happens very often is you know, sometimes there is maybe a long fund, maybe a fund that uh, had bought fully, fully in the past and they owned it and then they, had, they sold it in, in frustration because they noticed that the company would insist in not changing the dodgy auditor. So they would come up to me and tell me. Sometimes it could be a, you know, a short fund that say, hey, listen, I, I'm convinced that this stock is a, is a, has something wrong because the auditor is dodgy, because cash flows are not there and all that, but I can't really prove it. What do you think? You see what I mean? So that kind of collaboration, there is no, calling this a conspiracy is complete bollocks, and it's actually one of the tools that our adversary is trying to uh, plant into the minds of investors. There is no conspiracy. Of course, people talk like in any industry, um, but at the end of the day, the way you win this, especially if you win spectacularly with the stock being obliterated, you only do it by having very, very, very strong, accurate research and presenting it in a way that everybody can understand. 
You can have as many funds as you want against a company, but if the truth is not there, you're not going to get far. Look at Tesla, for example. It's been attacked by any short fund you can think of for years, and it's still there with, you know, with a very large market cap. And I can come up with many other examples. So the conspiracy thing is, is complete paranoia. You're not saying, just the avoidance of doubt, that you think Tesla is a good company, are you? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a, it's a proof that having a number of short sellers together, all with the same thesis um, pointed at the single target, does not guarantee that you get a result. Uh, whereas, look at us, we always act alone, and uh, usually we destroy the company, the fraudulent company. So you would be looking at uh, dozens of ideas a year, but it's only the one where you, A, it's large enough for you to take a meaningful short, and B, where you're convinced that it's a zero, that you will go after it. Oh, uh, yeah, we have a set of criteria. But since you asked me that, let me remind your listeners that if anybody has an idea uh, which corresponds to the set of criteria that I'm about to say now, you're please very welcome to contact us and, uh, and share it with us. And uh, in some cases, uh, if it's legal, we can work something out, okay? Um, anyway, or you could just so send it to Tom Winifred at Share Profits and let him have a scoop. But what is your criteria or, anyway, Gabriel? both. But the criteria is this. Uh, we look, first of all, we only go for zeros. We're not interested in a company that is a little bit overvalued, or the business model is a little weak, or whether you're going to miss the next earnings report, or if they cheated on a small part of the company a while ago. No, we look for total fraud, for total crime, and uh, any kind of information or situation that if brought to light is likely to bring the company to its total demise. Okay, that first, first criteria. Second criteria, it must be a situation that can be exposed with great clarity. So if it's a very complicated insurance fraud where all of the evidence is into the accounting and over reserve and things like that, well, then we're not probably that interested. Um, and uh, finally, it has to be in, in an area of the world where we believe we can operate with uh, expertise. Uh, so certain areas and certain emerging markets, for example, are very tough for us to operate. We prefer developed countries. Um, that's it pretty much, that's the idea. Is, you say that you, you want evidence of a whole fraud, but uh, maybe not for your purposes, for, but for the purposes of uh, 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 we sort of mortal small investors. Mm -hmm. If you see a company is telling a lie or is committing a tiny fraud, yes. would you not take the view that they're probably telling a whole load more lies and doing a lot more frauds, uh, but it's just that we haven't spotted it yet? Yeah, but what I do in that case is, you know, a blatant lie would make me suspicious. It would cause me to immediately look, go look at the accounts. And from the accounts, usually you can tell very quickly what is, if it's true, if it's a fraud, what is the extent of the fraud. So if you see, for example, uh, all of the frauds where we intervened, uh, Bion theoretically is still an, alle an alleged fraud. It's not yet uh, a confirmed fraud, but this I'm only using this term because of legal reasons. Oh, go but, on, by and sue me. You're a fraud. You're a fucking fraud, <laughs> and you're getting your they, toast. Sue me they, personally. They already sued me, so <laughs> there's not much more they can do. I'll, uh, I'll be in court with you. Sue me as well. <laughs> I want to be in court with Gabrielle. Anyway, so if you see Bion, Fully Fully, and Global, just to give you three examples, you will see that in all cases, at least 60-70%, there was at least 60-70% of earnings to cash flow discrepancy. 
So, and this, by the way, to see that, it takes 10 seconds. You just open your Bloomberg or Capital EQ or Yahoo Finance, whatever. You open up the cash flow statement and you see it right away. And so it, to answer your question, if a company is caught seeing a small lie, you go and check this thing out. And if you see that, yeah, look, they may have lied, but most things, the order of magnitude seems to be kosher, would probably look elsewhere. On the other hand, if it's a small lie and we see more red flags, then we look closely. And then we may check and maybe check out the company for a couple of days. And at some point, you reach a critical mass of damning information, of suspicious information that justifies a full-fledged investigation. And in that case, we, we put all, all our resources to work into this one thing with only one goal, extracting the smoking guns. And, uh, and then we come up with the best way to inform the market. So would I be right in assuming that there are quite a few companies where you've done your homework and you've found quite a few smoking guns, but you think, well, it's, it's a rubbish company and they tell a few lies and they cut a few corners, but it's probably not going to go bust just yet. Uh, and uh, yes. as a result, you don't, you don't publish the dossier. Yeah, it happens sometimes. Uh, more often what happens is I still think that it's a fraud and, it's a, and it should go to zero but I don't find a critical mass of information that I think is sufficient to convince the market. In other words, you see some, a lot of red flags, but no real smoking guns. And it's very frustrating. Those are the worst situation for us because we can spend months in it. And I become rather obsessive once I zero in on a target. But sometimes you need to recognize, hey, this is really not going anywhere. And you'll see that in the really good targets, uh, you get positive feedback all the time. You know, you find one thing that leads you to another thing that leads you to another piece of evidence. So the, the more you work, the more stuff comes out. You start getting that feeling very quickly. Whereas in other cases, you have a, you have a feeling that even though there is something that's generally suspicious about the company, uh, the evidence fails to point all in one direction and no smoking gun turn out even after a month. And that's the time when it's time to move on. Now, the mistake that some of my colleagues do is that when they reach that point, they continue and or they decide to publish anyway, even though they don't have any, they don't have any uh, sufficiently destructive or truthful uh, report. And that's where the problems arise because then it becomes a, an eternal discussion between the company and the short seller and nobody's proven correct. And, uh, and everybody's- um, But perhaps we might even be thinking about Burford in this case where uh, Muddy Waters has raised some very valid criticisms, but the company's defended it redou uh, uh, resolutely. And probably, although we are on the, on the side of Carson Block, we'd have to say he hasn't, he hasn't found a smoking gun. Yeah, I would say that uh, in the case of uh, Burford, uh, I would like to, as a premise here, that I have not looked at into it very closely. It's a very, very important and interesting uh, company. Uh, the thesis is interesting uh, both ways. The fact is that we've been really busy with this Italian uh, uh, alleged fraud, which uh, kept us too busy. But I can tell you a few things, because I did read the annual report of that company a few years ago, actually thinking of buying it. And I remember uh, deciding not to, because at the end of the day, everything boiled down to the subjective judgment of the, uh, of the management for the most critical part of the valuation of, uh, of the company and of the outstanding litigation and all that. So my feeling was, hey, it could be good, the numbers are good, but on the other hand, it's too subjective, and when we have a lot of subjective 
there is always a risk that somebody uh, is trying to cut corners. So if anything, the thesis reminded me a little bit of Herbalife, uh, whereby the problem of Bill Ackman there was that whether the company was a fraud or not ended up being a subjective judgment. And therefore, when it's subjective, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to prove it, right? Because it's, it's up to people's opinion. And in that case, it's whoever wins is the one that has the best PR. In that case, you really had the Stalingrad because both Bill Ackman and the company had the impressive PR machine. And at the end of the day, uh, both of them ended up losing in a way. So Burford has an element of subjectivity as well. But on the other hand, um, Carson Block is an incredibly skilled investor. And uh, I know, because I always look at his stuff, I know they do their homework very, very thoroughly. So if they saw something, uh, probably uh, if they saw smoke, there is fire somewhere. Having said that, right now, Burford has incredibly good PR and, needless to say, has got the uh, Deadwood Press eating out of its hand. Uh, so at the moment, it does feel a bit like uh, this is the beginning of Stalingrad. Maybe we're not at the end of the siege, but we're at the beginning. Uh, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. And it's, it will be interesting to see how it turns out, how it plays out. But I'm going to be watching from the sidelines. Indeed. One final question. Are you working on anything big right now? Um, I have a few interesting things on my table. Uh, there, nothing is spectacular yet. I'm looking for another big whale like uh, like Tolipoli or like Afria was. Uh, so I have a few mid-size deals that look quite promising. Uh, I haven't reached yet the state of, oh, we got critical um, mass of suspicious information. So I still don't know the go or no go, but certainly we're working on a few things. And if it's not this, it will be something else. So we'll, we're not going away anytime soon. I, I really enjoy this activity. Um, I think it's something that uh, gets me to use almost everything that I learned in my life, uh, test my character, my resilience. Uh, and, and this is the most beautiful thing. I, uh, many readers will not believe it, but I really never really cared much for money. Uh, I would say that I'm mostly an idealistic person, and I like to I like to do good mostly. And this is one of the very few endeavors where you can do something good, which is cleaning the market from the bad actors, um, and at the same time uh, make a little money. So, um, so I'll be out there. Good. We'll be keeping in touch. Keep at it, Gabriel. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gabrielle Grego. Uh, the odds are stacked against the shorter. Uh, in theory, your losses are unlimited, your maximum gains 100%. If you're long of a stock, it is the other way around. Uh, it is a very risky game. Markets can move against you. Uh, stock promoters are wily fellows. Uh, and uh, if you're not careful, you can lose a lot of money, even if your fundamental thesis is correct. I remember my friend Simon Corkwell, better known as Evil Knievel, losing three million quid shorting Regis. Uh, at the time, I'm absolutely sure that his fundamental thesis was correct, uh, but he found himself up against some brilliant stock promoters, uh, and uh, they squeezed him. They squeezed all the bears, and Corkwell lost an absolute fortune. 
It is because the odds are stacked against you and you're playing against stock promoters, you're playing against companies who will use shareholders' money for all sorts of ways to promote the share price. Uh, PR, IR, paid for interviews, paid for research, hiring brokers, who of course effectively is paying for research, uh, uh, using lawyers uh, to threaten and intimidate their critics, etc., etc., etc. Because the odds are stacked against you, if you are not very good at this game as a shorter, uh, you'll be taken to the cleaners uh, before too long. So those people who are still in the game after many years. Uh, Corkwell, I think, has been shorting uh, for more or less all of my uh, life, so at least 40 years. Uh, people like Lucien Myers, who we've interviewed here, Matthew Earle, who we've interviewed here, uh, Carson Block of Muddy Waters, and, of course, Gabrielle Grego. If you're still in the game after many, many years, you are almost by definition very good. Uh, 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 well, by definition, you are very good. As one of the things that attracts me to shorters, uh, I'm not actually short myself. My job is as an investigative journalist to expose companies uh, and people pay subscriptions uh, 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 to read my work. Uh, but I'm intrigued and I enjoy spending company in the time of shorters because they are by definition smarter. If, if they're still in the game after many years, they're by definition smarter uh, than the long-only crowd. Uh, they also tend to be more interesting people, more quirky. Uh, sometimes they can be uh, very irascible. Uh, it's interesting if you look at uh, uh, the uh, world of shorters, you see the shorters are always falling out with each other. I think uh, uh, Ewell Knievel and Lucian Myers aren't speaking. I haven't been speaking for a couple of years. Uh, of course, over in America, uh, uh, my friend Sam Antar, uh, the king of the fraudsters, has been having a terrible row uh, with Mark Cahodis, uh, 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 who uh, is another well-known shorter. Uh, uh, they have nightly uh, battles on Twitter, accusing each other of all sorts of nonsense. Uh, uh, Mark Cahodis punched Daniel Yu of Gotham City. Uh, in the face. So they can be quite sort of quirky. Uh, 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 John Hempton of Bronte, Bronte Capital. I think I'm having a row with him, or I had a row with him a couple of years ago. But certainly a quirky fellow uh, and easy to, uh, to start uh, uh, shouting and throwing his weight around. That is the nature of the bear community. There's always someone's having a fight with someone else. Uh, but they are interesting people. They're clever, they're cleverer than the uh, long-only crowd, and they're more interesting. I enjoy spending time with them, and I enjoy talking to them. And I hope that came through in that podcast with Gabriel Grego. Not only was he, I think, pro providing a pretty compelling defence of the activities of short sellers, uh, he was also explaining uh, what it is he looks for when he's going after uh, his next victim, but also... I think there were a couple of pretty good jokes in there. Uh, 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 well, uh, I thought they were funny anyway. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this latest edition of Share Profits Radio, number 13. Uh, I will be back in a week's time. Uh, if you like the jokes, if you like the sort of content in uh, this free podcast, why not subscribe to Share Profits? It's only five ninety nine a month. You get a daily podcast from me, a bear cast. It tends to last around 20, 25 minutes. Uh, and you get 300 articles a month, all for just £5.99. 
and access to our great archive, uh, including uh, almost a thousand articles and podcasts on Neil Woodford dating back to 2015 when we first warned about him, uh, uh, and a pretty similar number uh, on Quindell, the biggest stock market fraud of the past 30 years, company I did a lot to, to expose, was commended by the FRC for my work on it, and where I, I get the impression uh, that the Serious Fraud Office will be making arrests of Rob Terry, the CEO, and others uh, uh, within uh, the next few months. Uh, anyhow, if you want to access all of that, sign up to share profits now. Uh, my next Bearcast will be out uh, very soon indeed. Uh, if you're a cheapskate, well, you're a cheapskate. Uh, I'll speak to you in exactly a week's time with uh, edition 14 of Share Profits Radio. And now, uh, from uh, from Wales, I say uh, North Star, uh, and I'll speak to you in a week's time. I'll learn a bit more Welsh eventually. I'll be able to say that bit in Welsh uh, as well. Uh, good night. Mm-hmm.